for Talking Additive Episode 7. I am talking with Niklas Eutebach, Development Engineer, Additive Manufacturing for IGUS. I work at IGUS as a or Development Engineer for AM in general. I started with my master's degree at IGUS, built a 3D printer, and then I became the go-to guy for all things filament related. Since 1964, IGUS has leveraged its own unique line of motion plastics to provide custom parts that exhibit tribologically optimized properties. Parts that offer functional benefits such as self-lubrication, wear resistance, low coefficient of friction, and chemical dirt and dust resilience. Yes, I said tribologically optimized. You, dear listener, of course, know everything about tribology. Well, I looked it up online. Tribology is the study of wear, friction, lubrication, and anything to do with surfaces interacting with each other. This term pops up in engineering design, mechanical product design, aerospace, and advanced materials. It is a truly interdisciplinary topic that bridges mechanical engineering, manufacturing, material science, chemistry, physics, mathematics, nanotechnology, biomedical, computer science, and probably more. And most of the materials that are highlighted for tribologically optimized properties are metals. But uh, since 1964, IGUS has offered their range of motion plastics that do the same for compounded and reinforced polymers. How do they do this? It is a secret. It is a secret. Nicholas, can you tell us the secret to how IGUS achieves tribologically optimized properties? What is a solid lubricant? And what is the IGUS secret? Okay, I have to actually think about how much of this uh, we can actually disclose. I know. Well, whatever the secret is that has powered the IGUS global powerhouse in motion plastics with 38 subsidiary companies in 21 countries, these off-the-shelf and custom parts have made a real difference for machine designers and manufacturing experts worldwide making it possible to create everything from linear bearings and sliders to complex intermeshing mechanisms in polymer parts. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today, and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our seventh episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. This week on Talking Additive, we will talk with Nicholas about what it means for IGUS to offer their unique and secret solution for tribologically optimized properties as a 3D printable solution, and how this expands the range of what adopters of additive manufacturing expect from polymers. 
The emphasis of the company has been to offer their expertise as a service and as a manufacturer of a range of injection molded parts and bar stocks frequently used in machine and product design. But in 2014, IGIS announced that it would then offer SLS and FFF 3D printing materials as well, bringing the production of custom parts using these unique materials to more of their customers. As IGIS continues to explore compounding and processability optimizing for their line of filaments, they can offer a wider range of functional properties while also improving the ability to print with these materials. My name is Niklas Eutebach. I work at IGUS as a or development engineer for AM in general. I started with my master's degree at IGUS, built a 3D printer, and then I became the go-to guy for all things filament related. One of the things that fascinates me so much about the world of additive manufacturing is that everyone arrives here via their own strange footpath through the woods. My background was writing and technical producing aspects of sound and film, and therefore a decade of 3D printing. You, on the other hand, are something of a triple threat as a materials expert, a mechanical engineer, machine designer, and additive technical expert, which is rare and impressive. What about your background do you think made additive manufacturing so exciting for you? Why, when you hit upon additive manufacturing, were you ready to commit even in your studies and start working the field? The entry barrier is very low and it was even lower for me because I already knew how to design parts. Just the fascination of seeing the part coming to life inside the 3D printer, something that resonated with me, the opportunity that comes from 3D printing, like yeah, designing your parts in the morning and having it ready-made in the afternoon, that was just fascinating for me. It's pretty much aligned for me. On the one hand, my, my skill set. On the other hand, my fascination for the technique. Tell me how you ended up getting to know IGIS. My first interaction with IGIS was uh, actually during my master's degree, where I already explored the mechanical properties of 3D printed plastics. That was something that at the time, a few years ago, there was not as much data available on the internet or in on the like in the like literature and i explored how 3d printed specimens would compare to the standard injection molded probes that was one of my projects in during master's degrees and then much like before i saw a, li a listing for a um, yeah, corporation to write my master's degree by igus and i applied and we hit it off really well and so during the half year where I wrote my master's thesis, uh, I actually worked there. I had my, my desk there and could use all of the equipment and resources to develop the 3D printer that I built for them and for my thesis, which was actually a 3D printer inside a baking oven for developing high temperature uh, materials. That's fantastic. So then chart for me, you found an opportunity drawing on your Mechie and Mechatronic background and your interest in 3D printing to make this unique machine to solve a problem. Where did you go from there to committing to uh, working at IGIS like you are today? <clears throat> or did um, they just say, oh, here, he works I've... here. So let's just keep him. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite that easy, but I think uh, me starting my job at IGIS 
it felt quite natural because I had been making my experiments for half a year and everything fit together really well. My team's awesome. That's, that's just one thing. We were at the beginning of launching these high temperature filaments, which I enabled through my 3D printer that I built. It was natural to go on from there and to build up on, on that. For me, the opportunity was there and I jumped on it. When did you start working at IGIS? Pretty much exactly two years ago. After my master's degree in May 2018. Yeah, pretty much exactly two years now. Oh, excellent. Let's shift gear to talking more about IGIS as a company and your experiences working there. So where do you work? I work in the... 3D printing business unit, <laughs> plainly. This business unit was uh, created yeah, a few years back and we've been growing in team members as well as revenue. And we are five or six guys now and some helpers and we focus on 3D printing aspects. So material development and also 3D printing service solely, no, nothing else. Excellent. And then, so, so tell me about IGIS. What is IGIS and uh, how big of a company is it? I guess was founded in 1964 and they have become a specialist in motion plastics, as we call them. Materials for first applications were polymer bearings, bearings to replace bronze bushings, for example, with the added specialty that you don't need lubrication to run your assembly because there are solid lubricants already implemented in the material. And from that stems a whole bunch of different areas or product categories like bearings, linear technology, and also cable chains, energy drag chains, cables itself. So a lot of different uh, products all developed or evolving around special polymer blends. Okay, so how big of a company is it now? Igus has, uh, as of... This year, I think about uh, 4,100 people all around the world. So we are present on uh, every continent, but producing mainly in Cologne, Germany. Mm. I, I know from you know my background in working in hardware, there are so many times that you'll see, I guess, parts popping up, everything from prototyping to final products. Where do you imagine listeners might have encountered, I, I guess, components, even if they don't recognize them. One sort of top of mind where it's very likely that there's probably an IGUS component somewhere in it. I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but every third or fourth car has some kind of IGUS product inside, be it for little turning knobs or adjustment rail in the seat or any other component that has some kind of motion, throttle body, etc. There are a lot of IGUS products involved, household appliances, medical equipment, for example, it's quite a, a, a recent topic, beds or anything like that. It's quite diverse. So when I go to the holidays, I walk around and see, for example, a crane on a truck that has a drag chain guiding the, the cables uh, to, the, to the effector that's uh, from IGUS. So it's really all over the place. You made a, a really clear case that customers and, and people out in the world have encountered products that incorporate uh, IGUS components uh, in their final version. Uh, but also, it's very common for designers and engineers uh, to be able to find components when they're developing future products. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how an engineer, uh, designer, or business might find parts produced by IGUS. 
designers or developers stumble upon IGES through a lot of different ways, like, for example, browsing through a supplier's catalog or browsing through the internet on trade fairs. IGES is very um, yeah, spread through all of these different canals. And if you go to our website, you can just contact us by phone or mail. It's also no problem. Usually, if you take a part supplier, they would select maybe a very specific uh, selection of uh, products, like, for example, simply bearings for a certain diameter or only energy chains uh, for a certain cable diameter or whatever. Um, okay, so then so let's talk about, I guess, is entry into additive. So you mentioned that you're you're now on a team that's that's grown to six or seven people with some additional supporters. Mm -hmm. How how does the additive team fit into the company as a whole? And let's explore again the origin of this team. Like you, you mentioned, the the founder realizing that this is an excellent need for the kind of things that match the mandate for the company. But what was happening at I guess around three D printing when you arrived? We had developed and introduced our first filaments. And we're already also exploring and had the first production machine for uh, SLS uh, printing. At the time uh, we launched the, the 3D printing service and the filaments, it was um, in addition to the existing product portfolio for customers who knew our portfolios, who knew our, our uh, bearings and linear guides, etc., all the uh, products that we make from the plastics and for them to be able to, to produce custom parts, basically. Uh, individual Plastic parts was at the base idea of IGES, and with 3D printing, of course, we have a very good way to do just that. Back in 1964, our founder was presented with a problem about um, specific or custom injection molding part. So you present me with the problem, and, and I will give you the solution. This probably expands the range of customers who can, as a result, get that custom experience from IGES. As not every team and engineer, I would imagine, can afford to hire IGES for custom engineering services. So more customers experiencing the IGES philosophy. Talk to me about the beginning of the team and how the team fits into the company. 3D printing uh, first became a topic for IGES when makers from the rep rep movement came upon the linear bearings just for cheap and easy to, to use products to de design their own 3D printers. And uh, I think that's also where some of our people, like my manager, got started as we are a materials developer. It comes only natural that we would also uh, go into uh, developing materials for 3D printing that then have the uh, unique properties that they have. My manager, who was already working for some time at IGES, he got into 3D printing also because of personal interest, developed the first filaments. I think he's, he wound them up by hand coming from the extruder. And we started with filaments like, I think, 2014 or 15. And my manager started to explore making filaments as we uh, also do extrusion like for bar stock materials. We could easily try and extrude some filament. And when we, we, we bought the first printer and started using the materials. And from there, uh, it continued into yeah, offering filaments, offering the printing service with filaments, and then into SLS printing, developing powder-based materials that have the same properties for uh, the 3D printing service. 
I remember when those materials were first announced. There wasn't much adoption in the U.S. at the time, at least that I had seen among the engineers and designers I was working with. But there was definitely interest, and it definitely inspired a lot of people to widen their expectations for what functional parts would be possible with a 3D printer. I'm really not sure that many of us would have been able to print them as beautifully as we can today. So maybe these materials were just slightly ahead of their time. Anyway. Let's dive deeper into these materials. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show. We'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Tell me a little bit more about specifically the role that IGUS plays in material development. IGUS provides unique plastics. So is there chemical development as well as blending and compounding? And it sounds like you actually have extrusion lines in order to, well, I, I, you do, you have a, a whole facility for this. Walk us through those various things and help split it out because our listeners will be aware at a, at a high level that plastics are produced and that there's a difference between the chemical companies and compounders, but they really could use some guidance. I, I see what you're getting at. To to gain the unique properties that our Iglidor materials have, it's all about additives. So we don't develop the base polymer, the base resin, because there are a lot of companies in the market that are specialists just for that. We are the specialists in yeah, developing uh, recipes and compounds that add all the different uh, additives like uh, solid lubricants to these materials and to gain the feature set that, that we offer. We do our own compounding we do our own extrusion and we produce the filament. And then, of course, we have a big, big uh, department concerned with injection molding. So that is basically most of the, the products that we produce, we injection mold ourselves. And that is that is really the, the life cycle, the span. Okay, then let's look with razor focus for a moment at, I guess, this history at finding solutions for these additives to provide these unique experiences. There's a range of applications that IGUS serves in radically different engineering properties. From an outsider, it seems like these are functional ways to make parts that they're not just dimensioning out the object, they're, they're serving a, a purpose. How does that relate to how IGUS solves problems? Our materials are only motion plastics, uh, we don't deal in standard polymers for standard applications like housings, etc. We really specialize on, on these materials like uh, for bearings. And during the last uh, 55 years, customers use our products to solve their specific problems, maybe to replace a corroded metal bearing or else. And we have always been very open to, to wishes and suge suggestions by our customers. So then if a customer has a specific problem that uh, we 
couldn't solve with our existing materials, then of course we would go and find out what what we would need to change within a material or uh, what new kind of material we would have to develop to to be able to solve the problem. And this is basically, I think, how most of our products uh, have have come to life over over the years. Uh, we've found a demand and met it by a new development. I don't usually see other polymer parts offering the motion plastic properties that your company offers. How unique are those solutions that IGIS provides? I'm not sure how other companies approach the same problems that we do or what what solutions they have. But in 3D printing, I think our um, approach to produce wear parts by 3D printing and to develop materials, uh, especially for wear resistance and coefficient of friction, that is quite unique at this point. For our listeners who don't have a material science background, how can you solve these kinds of problems in plastics? How can you offer these things that you associate with metals or lubricants or other 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 types of mechanical solutions? How can you solve them in these polymer parts? Developing a new material for a specific application, for example, we have to know what is the the condition that the material will be, will be applied in. So like temperature, load, corrosion or media, corroding media, for example, chemicals. And then we know and we have to combine what base polymer is the right polymer for a specific application. And then of what additives can we use or what additives can't be used for a specific application case. And then we have candidates for a new material. Developing doesn't end at just throwing together some materials and compounding, but it goes deeper than that. In general, we would then produce testing samples and would go through our testing laboratory, which consists of a multitude of tests measuring the coefficient of friction, etc. And then we would have, in the end, some candidates that hopefully fulfill all the uh, the demands of the application. And then we, we select uh, whatever material works best. In 3D printing, of course, it's a little more difficult than that. We have some material experts who have a long-lasting experience in these kinds of questions. What base material to use? What kind of additives to use? And for 3D printing, we all know that 3D printing can have its, its difficulties. So there we have to factor in the special demands of 3D printing. That's where, where I come in, for example. So finding materials and compositions that not only have the, the properties for the application case, but also that you can easily 3D print, which is easier said than done, of course. Same goes for my colleagues who develop materials for the SLS processes, which is a whole another exercise uh, in itself which is, uh, I think, also way more complicated than finding material for 3D printing or for filament printing. Now, is there a way to, to describe in a simple way from a polymer development direction, like what kinds of things allow materials to, to have that low coefficient of friction? Is there any, like, once again, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to get into secret stuff, but it's, it's a little mysterious because well because other folks don't offer this what and so you don't necessarily think that oh what you can actually change completely the behavior of these materials working with a, a base polymer that without those additives or with different additives would have a completely different surface 
Well, when we develop a material, we also test the behavior of the material in, in the specific uh, testing cases. And in fact, we do from time to time find that the base material doesn't really work that well in the application or in the tests. So actually it is very much a lot about the, the additives, which provide, as I said, solid lubrication and also yeah, define or lower very much the coefficient of friction, which all plays together to create these tribological properties. Okay, so at the top of this episode, I mentioned the word tribology and tribological properties and confessed that while I, I did have a hazy notion of what it was from studying engineering and machine design before, I had to look it up online to really know what it is to prepare me for researching IGUS. So the term sounds positively ancient because it is formulated with Greek roots, tribo, which would be something like I rub in classical Greek, and logia, which is the study of, as in everything from biology, study of life, to archaeology, cytology, cryptology, to mixology, the science of making good cocktails. Well, it might surprise you that despite the impressive heft to this word tribology, that mixology is roughly a hundred years older as a term than tribology, a term invented by Peter Jost, the British mechanical engineer and founder of the discipline of tribology, who invented the term in 1966 to address the science and engineering of interacting surfaces in relative motion. According to Wikipedia, and here I issue my apology that my research into the etymology of tribology didn't dig much deeper than the 7,500-word article on Wikipedia about tribology, Peter Jost announced the term in a report where he warned of the high cost of friction, wear, and corrosion to the UK economy in 1966, which was significant, something between 1 and 1.4% of the GDP. He then dedicated his career to evangelizing the concept. Well, if you have been paying attention, you might know something about the numbers I just mentioned. Would it surprise you to learn that Gunther Blase started IGIS in a double garage in Cologne, Germany in 1964, before the engineering discipline he was already contributing to was officially labeled? As I said before, tribology is the study of anything to do with surfaces interacting with each other. To grab my definition from before, uh, this term pops up in engineering design, mechanical product design, aerospace, and advanced materials. It is a truly interdisciplinary topic that bridges mechanical engineering, manufacturing, material science, chemistry, physics, mathematics, nanotechnology, biomedical technology, computer science, and I have to suspect much more. And as I highlighted, most of the materials that are indicated for tribologically optimized properties are metals. Steel, copper, brass, bronze, nano-constructed, folded, reworked, impregnated metals, foils, sheets, sheaths, bearings, ball bearings. So it is well worth mentioning here that these motion plastic parts from IGUS whether they are created with an injection molding process or via 3D printing, offer lightweight and low-maintenance alternatives to metal-machined motion parts. And while there are high-load cases that might not be appropriate for motion plastics, so many 
of the contact points where machines and surfaces rub, slide, collide, and guide other components around can be very well served by polymer parts engineered to meet the specific use case. But it does appear to be complex. And even the 7,500-word article about tribology in uh, Wikipedia uh, goes beyond where I can really follow. So um, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's quite complex, but um... so in addition to offering uh, a line of filaments, uh, which I guess does now, do you also do custom extrudable materials for companies? Actually, that we uh, are selling 3D printing filament, which technically is a raw material, is a first for I guess, or the closest to that would be selling bar stock which uh, customers can use to mill and turn parts from. But usually we don't sell materials right out, out of the gate. We provide injection molding as a service. Custom, of course, so if a customer needs the, the part, then uh, we will do the tooling and, and do the injection molding. But that we sell the raw material for a customer to produce their own parts is really a first, I would say, with 3D printing materials. Oh, that's, I, I didn't know that. That makes sense. Doing uh, injection molding solutions, I guess, takes on the role of tooling and, and also finding the right additives and blends to produce those parts, right? Is, am I understanding that correctly? When we offer the, the injection molding as a service, we don't always develop a new material, but we have over 50 uh, igli Dura materials that, that we then choose uh, for the application. So uh, it's not always like compounding or developing a new material. And for 3D printing, it's kind of similar. We don't develop a new material for every customer's use case, but we offer a set albeit smaller, that, but uh, we offer a set of filaments that the customer can choose from, from for their applications. That a part would then really work in the application is far more in the hands of the customer than it is in ours. So us providing catalog parts or providing injection molding parts is yeah more safe way to ensure that the part will actually work as designed. But uh, 3D printing, of course, uh, you have a whole another um, process that is in the customer's hands. So the customer has to operate the 3D printer. Customers then in the, in the end, they ensure that the part actually is made to specification. That is quite of a first for Igus as well. What is Igus thinking about these additive manufacturing materials that it's now offering? What's the experience of offering SLS and FFF materials? So yeah, we have in, in 3D printing realm, our materials are more like all-rounders at, at this point, so materials that can generally be used for wear parts, gears, etc. But some applications always demand a more specific material. I think that is the direction that it's going to take in the future. So developing more specialized materials for common or not so common use cases and then having a set of materials around us and specialist materials that customer can choose from if they have a more specific use case. I think that is the way that it's going to take. The next thing that I want us to do is to go through the materials that uh, you're offering in the material marketplace mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about some of the FFF customers right now. At this point, we have a range of filaments. Two of them we have in the marketplace at this moment, which would be our most used materials, which would be Iglidor I-150 and I-180. Okay, so uh, looking these lines up in the material marketplace for Ultimaker Cura, I read iGlider Tribofilament 
self-lubricating and easy-to-print material for the use as bearing, nut, gear, or other wear part. Up to 50 times higher wear resistance than conventional 3D printing materials. For consumer and professional applications in demand of low friction and high abrasion resistance, as well as higher application temperatures, lubrication-free bearings, moving assemblies, jigs and fixtures, and complex wear parts. That's pretty impressive. So how do users pick between the i150 and the i180? I-150 would be the all-rounder, the general purpose material that is suited for most applications, for most, I would say, lower load or lower strain applications in terms of wear resistance, but it's the easiest to to process. And in our lineup, it's quite unique as it's also certified for food contact in the European Union. I would imagine that a lot of customers in the food and beverage industry would be happy to see this. Motion plastics for automation lines, industrial scale, production equipment, and packaging. I know there is interest in the U.S. for more food certified materials. Do you have FDA approval for this printed material? Unfortunately, we don't have a easy-to-print FDA-approved material. That is uh, one request that comes to us from customers often. So that is uh, certainly something that you might be able to see in the future. Okay, great. Well, we'll watch for that. I-150 general-purpose uh, material around can be printed or processed on most 3D printers, maybe even all. It doesn't need any specifics like enclosure, etc. So it would be a starting material comparable to PLA or PTG, but with way better wear properties. And then I-180 would be our more advanced material. In the lineup, it's still fairly easy to process, but it profits greatly from a enclosed printer such as the Ultimaker S5 with the the Air Manager that uh, has already helped me to make better parts from this material. Okay, so the description of the i180 looks pretty similar to the i150, other than for different application temperature ranges. So let's see here. So up to 80 degrees Celsius, or 90 degrees for short periods, as opposed to the i150 with up to 65 degrees Celsius and 75 degrees for short periods. Huh. Is I-150 named for 150 degrees Fahrenheit and I-180 for 180 degrees Fahrenheit? If not, that is at least helpful for my American ears and probably our listeners uh, as a way to remember 65 degrees Celsius versus 80 degrees Celsius. So tell me more about the I-180. So it, it's just, it has an, uh, a higher application temperature, is uh, suited for higher loads, like for higher speeds or higher bearing loads. We have one material with exactly the same properties in all manufacturing technologies, which makes it difficult for 3D printing, but it's a very good resource for developers if they are prototyping with this material and want to prototype for the final application. J260, which we don't have a profile for in the marketplace as of yet, which has some of the best wear properties actually, but it's more difficult to print and to get a consistent result just because it's uh, the same material in filament form as it is in extrusion and injection molding grades. We have some more materials in the high temperature range, which require a 3D printer that is enclosed and actively heated, so about 350 to 400 degrees Celsius, 
and enclosure temperature up to 200 degrees Celsius. So that is not in the realm of a standard Ultimaker, maybe in the future, but <laughs> that is it. There we have one specialist material for the railway industry meeting the very strict flammability demands. Uh, we have another material, A350, that is uh, especially designed for the food industry. So EU 10 2011 and also FDA approved. But those materials you can't process on a Ultimaker. Uh, that is why we kept it at the two materials, I-150 and I-180 for the Ultimaker for the marketplace at this point. Well, I would imagine we would explore expanding our temperature ranges in the future. But for now, this is also a great opportunity for you to use the 3D printer in an oven that you created for IGIS. So that's good. But this brings me to a key question. Stepping back from the convenience of the Ultimaker Cura material marketplace for the moment. But why is providing materials that are suited to uh, Ultimaker's range good for IGIS? I think mostly the, the user base is really interesting for us. We see a lot of customers in the packaging industry or different industries use one of these machines. And this makes it very easy for us to provide not only the, the material, but the security for them that they will be able to process these materials without any problems. And, and also we can give very detailed and specific support if we are contacted by them i can say okay let me try this or i can even replicate the problem or i can provide them with a print file that they would then print with the same conditions that we we have at our factory that's uh, really just a nice ecosystem so then let's talk about some of the future directions for the line where do you think i guess is going to take offerings for the fff space in the future so in terms of new materials or also new services, we are at this point close to releasing uh, a new filament that is, is actually being developed for and on an Ultimaker. And this will be a new general purpose material, but with better properties that, than the materials offer at this point. So for higher mechanical strength, even better wear and friction properties, which would make it suitable for gears. So that's something that a lot of customers uh, ask. What would be the best filament for gears? Well, like a uh, plain gear replacement part for a machine, for example. And so we do have filaments uh, that would be suited, but at this point, uh, the best combination is still not there. And, and the new filament would be uh, a very good candidate for that. A new all-rounder that will bring together some of the filaments that we have before. So we have uh, a very easy to process material and we have a very, very wear resistant, so more wear resistant than the other uh, material, but that is more difficult to print. We want to announce a new material that is uh, easy to print, but with high mechanical strength and with very good wear and gliding properties. So that would also unlock some more applications uh, that weren't possible before. And we, of course, are intending to release it uh, for the marketplace as well. So once uh, we have the material in stock, customers will be able to download the profile and start printing right away. So let's go through a, a couple of topics about how Argus approaches FFF and benefits the customers. You went over the material line. But what would you describe as the sort of core proposition as a developer and provider of FFF materials? 
Okay, it's really in, in, in my experience, not exclusively like the, the engineer who's designing a specific device or a machine, but it's also, uh, it goes down to the shop floor. So people who might not even be that knowledgeable in terms of uh, CAD design, or they still see that this technology is approachable and that they could be able to use the machines. And for them, it provides a whole nother tool set before they might have been milling and turning and boring their parts from metal or from polymers. But but now they can use a easy to use machine right at the shop floor and use make use of the of the materials that that we provide. And there the the opportunities are really endless. I'm thinking about custom wear plates or replacement gears, all kinds of things. The, the standard application, maybe a little bit boring, would be the, the plain bearing. This is what we or originated from, but all, all types of applications where wear is a factor, gliding, smoothly gliding is a factor. All these kinds of applications are really where our materials uh, come to shine. Beyond just being able to have the material properties, where does 3D printing those objects really become an added value? That is something where my fascination for 3D printing actually stems from that you can optimize a design and integrate as many functions as you as you like into a single part that can replace an assembly. That is something that in product development unlocks ways to make a design better, maybe even cheaper in terms of manufacturing costs, in terms of assembly costs, but also just plainly more elegant in my in my opinion that is something that i find uh, very fascinating as we offer a 3d printing service we have a lot of different designs from various customers and designers go through our little factory and the things that people come up with in terms of what i just mentioned freedom of design geometries that is just mind-blowing to see sometimes that is i think the biggest uh, advantage in 3d printing uh, let's explore design elegance a little bit further do you have a project that you've done or one of these 3D printing as a service projects where you can share some specifics of uh, how parts reduction and optimizing has really made a difference? Okay, so I have one project. Of course, I can't really tell you about the customer, what it's being used for, but it was a, a, a gripper, a vacuum gripper not only to grip parts, but also to change the format of the area that it's uh, supposed to pick up parts. And to be honest, I, I haven't seen something like this being designed before, but just to see how the customer did it in this case, it made perfect sense. It basically evolved around two bars of aluminium for the basic structure and then a lot of 3D printed parts and obviously screws and transmission belts, but uh, a lot of parts that had intricate design uh, yeah, elements just built into them, which otherwise would have been assemblies in itself. And that was very unique uh, to see and I imagine that it would also have been uh, way cheaper for them to, to produce the part like this or the, the assembly like this than it would have been to make this from aluminium. That is uh, yeah, also something that customers use our services for. Grippers to screw the caps into cosmetic bottles. Custom formats with each new bottle. You have a new lid and a new cap that you have to screw on. And all of these uh, different individual parts uh, you would have to mill from aluminium, which costs uh, time and money and material costs, etc. Where 3D printing just shines for these small batches. 
part count is really, or series uh, batch size is really also another factor that 3D printing really shines at. What's an application that this is a great match for, but you haven't seen people exploring yet that you want to evangelize? <sighs> that's a really good question. I think that's something that you can read about a lot already in the 3D printing media, weight optimized parts with these intricate organic structures. That is something that would be uh, great in like packaging lines where you have really high cycle counts, uh, really high speeds, where basically in, in, in a factor that you move around, that you pick up maybe carton with or, or lids with every, every bit of weight uh, that you save would, would help a lot. But actually, I haven't seen uh, custom customers explore that in, in depth uh, yet, maybe, maybe in the future. Maybe after hearing this podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. And again, I encourage uh, anybody who is inspired by this podcast to go out and do some light waiting on an automation line. And please share your discoveries because this sounds like it'd be beneficial to, to all of those working in this field. It's talking generally about the supply chain. Uh, how do you see the supply chain evolving? Obviously, it's key to talk about it in terms of, I guess, as a additive material provider, but also, I guess, offers these parts that people need all around the world. How do you think the supply chain will evolve? So in terms of 3D printed parts, if we think about spare parts or also parts that have to be replaced often, usually you would have a whole catalog uh, of different parts with part numbers that you would all have to take care about. You have to check the stock, etc. You'd have to, to order when they run out. And now you would just have to, to keep a stock of one or two filament materials and the stock of digital files. That is a whole different story than actual physical parts, of course. Uh, and you would have to have one or two persons occupied with producing these parts, but it's a whole different game than a traditional stock keeping infrastructure. And I think for us, in some way, it goes the same. We have a big uh, catalog of, for example, bearings or thread nuts. In the most, we have plain bearings, we have flanged bearings, we have short bearings and long bearings and all of these for one certain diameter. And we have a whole range of diameters that we have to keep stock for and then all these different materials. It's just hundreds and hundreds of different parts. And as we want to be able to deliver to most customers around the world in a very short time from 24 hours, that's our uh, advertising, we have to keep stock of all of these different parts all around the world, in the US, in uh, Brazil, in Africa, in China, etc. That's a huge task in terms of the logistics, planes, etc., but also the stock keeping and all of this would uh, change. We, we do actually have at this point printing, or we, we are 3D printing in our subsidiaries in the US and in China as well. So there, for example, just from sharing or distributing some digital files and producing locally, all of this uh, falls away. Sending parts from Germany to the US, for example, falls away. And if we think it a little bit further, if we have like, if we would replace some of the catalog parts that we are offering at this point by digital options, yeah? so customer would order when they need it, and we would produce uh, just in time, would greatly reduce the the logistics. So this is a big jump from the way suppliers and equipment providers collaborated with manufacturers in the past and encourages a number of promising future routes for the industry. So looking far into the future, 
how do you think focusing on 3D printing materials will benefit your customers looking to make use of the kind of properties that IGES brings to the table? During the last uh, 50 plus years, new materials have been developed because of customer demands of, of a certain use case that a customer has had. And I think this will evolve in the same way in terms of uh, 3D printing materials. So we will continue. Now. Uh, we have one or two projects in the, in the pipeline as of right now of exactly, I think, what you are thinking about, like custom material for a specific customer use case. So I think all of this would lead in the end to having the same set of materials like we have in injection molding right now to have this all 3D printing as well. So if a customer has a very specific use case, we'll just go through our list of materials and point out this material and say, this would be the very best for your use case. And I think judging from the experience from the past, this is usually also the case. Thank you very much for, for joining and for sharing deep insights into the, the role IGUS is playing in additive manufacturing, how that fits into how IGUS plays a, a major role in machine design parts in general. And yeah, thank you for, for your generosity of time. Uh, you're most welcome. Yeah, thank you as well for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. We hope that you have enjoyed our seventh episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring Nicholas, development engineer, additive manufacturing from IGUS. To learn more about IGUS, visit their homepage at www.igus.com. And there's a whole section for additive manufacturing. In two weeks, we return with episode eight, which will explore the manufacturing vertical of food and beverage. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. It really helps us. Please do it. And we'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Posting review will help other potential listeners find our show. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at talkingadditive.com. Thanks again to Nicholas and the IGUS Additive Manufacturing team for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hanna Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound for the music and episode sound mix. I am the host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.